This latest in a series of CMEC podcasts on Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 strategy is being brought to you in conjunction with the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies. Welcome to the second in CMEC's series of podcasts exploring Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030, five years in and its impact on the MENA region. I'm Charlotte Leslie, the director of CMEC. You will hear a lot about infrastructure change and financial investment in Vision 2030, but the vision perhaps depends most on the kingdom's human capital and unleashing the potential of Saudi's people and all of them. The last few years have already seen huge changes for women. Who could have imagined a decade ago that Saudi women would be driving or watching and participating in sports such as boxing or soccer? Other women have been appointed members of the Shura Council, occupy very senior positions in finance, law, and indeed politics. Her Royal Highness Princess Rima bint Bandar Al Saud is the first woman to be appointed as the kingdom's ambassador to the United States. But other crucial changes have not been so high profile. Quietly important steps have been taken to relax Saudi Arabia's guardianship laws, enhance women's role in society, and improve their access to employment. In our last podcast, we looked at Saudi Arabia's endeavours to move its economy away from oil. In this podcast, we explore how the kingdom intends to unleash the potential of its female workforce and ask, here at the end of 2021, what does it mean to be a Saudi woman in Saudi Arabia today? Here to help answer that question, I'm delighted to welcome Tharaya Ahmed Abaid and Ibrahim Al-Mubarak. Thuraya is a Saudi national with a distinguished academic background, studying changing societies with particular reference to the role of women. She's held key roles in international organizations, including being the executive director of the United Nations Population Fund, the first Arab woman to head such an international organization. In Saudi Arabia, she was one of the first Saudi women to be appointed to the Shura Council in 2013, she was chair of Women 20, one of the engagement groups of G20 during Saudi Arabia's presidency, and was a member of the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response, established by the World Health Assembly in May 2020. Ibrahim is the Deputy Minister at the Ministry of Labour and Social Development, responsible for social security. He developed the strategy for the new social security law, which passed with royal assent on the 17th of November 2020. Ibrahim, Tharaya, a big welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thank you. Now, let's just start with the most basic question. We're talking about women in work. Why is it important to get women into work? And Tharaya, as, as one of the pioneers in, in, in women's empowerment in Saudi Arabia, perhaps I could ask you that question first. Well, first, I have to say I'm very happy to, to be with Ibrahim on the same panel. Usually when we discuss women, it's only women talking to each other. So I'm very happy to see that I have a counterpart here, Ibrahim, who's really responsible also for uh, policies related to employment and that impacts on women. So thank you very much for bringing us together. The issue of, of women and work is a long-term issue historically and so on. The importance of it, and I'll tell you basically how I was empowered by my father to have this education, career, etc. His philosophy was, you need to get education and skills so you can work, whether you're married or not, you can take care of yourself. So the whole idea of empowering women, it's not to take away from the men, and I would like to discuss this at that point, at some point but rather to allow women to be able to be financially independent regardless of their family status. And it is important also because in Islam, there is a whole bit about the financial independence of women. Her money is her money and she manages her money. So even from an Islamic point of view, women managing their money is very critical and it's part of the tradition. So that's why we think the whole issue of women at work and financial independence are very closely linked. 
Now, before I come to Ibrahim, and we are, of course, a very equal opportunities organization at CMEC, um, before <laughs> I come to Ibrahim, I'm just going to pick up on, on one thing that you said, which may surprise some of our listeners, and that's the Islamic aspect of women's empowerment. Could you elaborate on that a little? Because many of our listeners will think of the Islamic element, particularly in Saudi Arabia, as being quite oppressive to women. Would you be able to expand on that a little? Of course. When I was selected, when I was nominated, to be more accurate, by King Abdullah for the post of Under Secretary General and so on, there was a whole halabaloo in New York among feminist groups. How can they possibly select a woman from Saudi Arabia, conservative, Islamic, etc., to head an organization that deals with empowerment of women, sexual reproductive health, uh, violence against women, and other uh, demographic issues. And for the first time in the history of the UN, the NGOs decided to interview me. This has never happened. And actually it was profiling in the sense that they forgot all my long history in the UN and they decided I just stood for a woman from Saudi Arabia. Anyway, I was interviewed, they liked me and so on and the campaign kind of damped, damped it a little bit. But when I introduced myself to the board, the first meeting with the government, and the Nordics had question marks as well, as well as many of the Europeans and the US, I decided to introduce myself in a totally un-UNish type. I said that my father, I come from Medina, my parents are from Medina, and that my father decided to educate me like my brothers because he felt that empowering me was his Muslim's role as a father based on the first word of our Quran, which is read. And he felt it was his Muslim duty to ensure that his daughters and sons, both of them are equally educated to read, therefore to become good Muslims. And there is nowhere in the Quran that says women cannot be educated. You know, what's happening in Afghanistan, for example, where I was there and I saw that girls did not go to school. In 1997, we were negotiating. They said based on Islam, it was not based on Islam. Islam is more of an empowering for knowledge. And that's how I was empowered. So from an Islamic point of view, this is really where knowledge and reading and writing and economic independence is there. Right, that's, that's fascinating. Thank you. Ibrahim, I'll ask you the same question about why it's important to get women into work. But I'd just like to preface that with a thought that Thuraya's father seems to be very instrumental in the decision to empower her and, and set her on her impressive trajectory in life. I'm guessing that not all women in Saudi Arabia have that opportunity. Could you just talk about the importance of women in work and whether it's a, it's a preserve of a few or whether there's a divide in getting women into work? Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I do agree with my colleague here. However, I just want to highlight also further points and then I'll touch up on your question. First of all, we know that many women might end up staying in an abusive marriage, for example, because they don't have a financial stability or financial independence. The probability of a family where the breadwinner is the, is the man or the husband, if the wife becomes widowed, also it's a higher probability for them to fall into poverty. That's another reason why they have to have the skills and the ability to enter the labor market. From an economic perspective, it makes sense. We have six to seven million jobs being taken by expatriates and only about less than 2 million taken by the Saudi population. From purely an economic perspective, we have an untapped into human capital that we can develop and utilize. And they're generally, they have propensity to consume within the kingdom rather than send the money abroad and what have you. Not saying that I'd rather no expatriate. It's a good balance. But in Saudi, we have a lot of untapped potential that is not in the labor market and we can. Now, going back to your question, it is true. Unfortunately, at the low-income households, that participation in the labor market has been significantly lower than the other quantiles, if you look at higher-income households. Now, and this is where structural and policy changes come into play, whereby you start incentivizing the heads of the households, the dependents of these households, 
to try and enter the labor market, develop their skills to have that ability. So we don't want to rely on the benevolence of the various people or the heads of households. We have to have a structural and a policy in place to enable women to pick up the skills first, to have the safety and the comforts in the labor market, and to enter the labor market and participate. And that, hopefully, is what we've been working on for a while now. In the UK, a few years ago, there was, there was a very interesting debate as to whether the broader divide or the bigger divide was between male and female or rich and poor. And David Willits, who is now in the House of Lords, Lord Willits, posited that actually if you were a rich woman, you actually had better opportunities than if you were a poor man. And that, that attracted great controversy. How would you see that dynamic working in Saudi Arabia? Are you better off as a rich Saudi woman who travels internationally or as a poor Saudi man? I'll ask Ibrahim first and then Faraya. I mean, also think about poor women. That's another challenge huh? because the reality and the King Khaled Foundation have done a lot of research in that sec sector is poverty is really focused amongst women and women-headed households. So basically the probability of a woman-headed household to be poor is much higher. Now, with regards to wealthy women versus poor men, the definition of wealthy is what? I think I understand the discussion. I always say, yes, let us focus on the bottom 20%, men and women. Because the top 20%, men and women, are relatively okay. So if we only have some energy to, to exert, to make change, I'd rather we focus on the bottom 20%. And even my friends and colleagues who work on the women empowerment programs, I have been always an advocate to focus the statistics, the numbers, the magnifying glass on the bottom 20%. Because the top 20%, they just need you to have the policies in place. For example, women driving, you just open up the door. Many of the women at the top 20% already are comfortable. They will be get a car, they get a license. Some of them even been driving in the United States and other countries as well. So the top 20% solving and empowering women in that is usually just open up the door, have the right policy, have the right opportunities for them. They have the skills, they are very well educated, they have the, the, the social support and the family support, like Dr. Thraya here. They have the, the educated parents that can support them into that. At the bottom 20%, the story is very different. You need to design incentives, other than the policy, obviously, where you need for all. Uh, you need to design incentives, you need to really, really keep a weather eye on, on avoiding looking at averages. If you look at averages of, of women uh, labor participation in Saudi, it's been increasing. But then if you look at the top, bottom 20% only, it might not be the same case. So poor men versus wealthy women, I, I don't, I don't want to get into that discussion. And to remind you, I'm Charlotte Leslie, Director of CMEC, and I'm talking to Ibrahim Al-Mubarak and Shura Council Member Dr. Tharaya Ahmed Obaid about Vision 2030 and women in the workplace. Tharaya, you, you talked earlier briefly about not leaving the men behind. Can you just sort of talk a bit about how you see that happening, particularly as, as Ibrahim said in the bottom 20%? Well, I agree with, with Ibrahim and what he said, poverty is poverty. For men, for women, it's poverty and suffering is there. However, data that does tell us that poor women suffer a little bit more than men because of the social limitations, skill limitations, etc. So as we give attention to that lower, that 20% Ibrahim is talking about, we need to also be able to develop the skills of women that men may already have with a special attention. It's not because they're better or we prefer women, it's because their situation, their skills set is much less. So in that sense, yes, we should focus on the lower 20% with special attention to the whatever the men and women have as skills that will allow them to jump out of poverty. The interesting part also that I, I would like to address to Ibrahim, he said something about that, you know, I come from a family, you know, my parents are educated. My, my father, I, Ibrahim, I call myself the dinosaur among women. I belong to the pre-oil generation. My father is a product of the Medina Mosque, and it was his religious education that pushed me all the way there. 
So, you know, we look at our history in Saudi Arabia and often it's presented as if the empowerment of women just started now. And I keep on saying, no, it started much earlier. You know, if you think of the history of Saudi Arabia, where education for girls started in 1961, official governmental education. And look where we are now. Look at this big jump that took place within a very short period that even some European countries did, cannot batch it. And with this kind of uh, short or rapid changes that took place, even though I always say Saudi Arabia is changing, Saudi Arabia is evolutionary, not revolutionary, it takes time. However, with this quick change, yes, we had hiccups. There is no society without hiccups. We went through a hard period and now we're coming out of it. So the history of women, really, if things developed from the 1950s onward, we may not have had that hard period in the middle where women couldn't struggle, couldn't drive, couldn't do this, but we jumped over it and now we are in, in another stage. So I'm just giving you a dinosaur vision of the past. And the, the, the women now, what women are having now, they're really, it is the, the flowers or the products, the fruits of what was planted very early in the 1950s. You know, 1950s, just for your listeners, Saudi Arabia didn't have schools for girls. In Hejaz, because that's where the government was and so on, many families sent their girls to Cairo. I, was, I went to Cairo when I was seven years old. I went to boarding school when I was seven years old because there were no schools. And I, you know, I had good education. I know my father is a middle-class man and I knew how harsh it was for him, but he did it because he felt this was empowering me. What I want to emphasize, because I hear now among the young women, they interpret empowerment, and I'd like to hear Ibrahim's uh, reaction. They interpret empowerment as my interpret as a woman. I see it when a woman is empowered, the whole house is empowered. The husband is empowered. The children are empowered because she is contributing to a better life for all. So I worry sometimes that there is a wrong interpretation of empowering women. Empowering women, women are not living in silos. They're part of families. So whatever good comes to them will also come to the husband and to the children. And so this is within the context of how men and women are both empowered. And if the man is also empowered with an open mind, it also means he will support his sister, his wife, his mom, whatever, also to find her way of independence. So I don't know what Ibrahim thinks about that. I totally agree with you. And uh, to be honest, uh, when I mentioned the bottom 20%, the reason I mentioned that, because the majority of households at the bottom 20% are headed by women, actually. The majority of the poor in Saudi are households with either a large number of uh, a large members uh, that are women or the head of the household is women. So I do agree with you. And from a, just a quick back of the envelope calculation, if you have a household of, of five or six, you can push the, la the, the labor market and the, and the companies to raise the minimum wage, like what we did from 3,000 to 4,000. That's a 30% increase in income. But if you manage to, uh, to get the wife into the labor market, you double the household income exactly. at the minimum wage, assuming bo both of them are the minimum wage. So you have a much larger ability to increase the prosperity, even at the minimum wage, because you're doubling the income rather than just focusing on the existing people in the, in the labor market and say, I'll have regulations to increase the minimum wage or incentivize increasing the income of the employees at the minimum wage. So it's, I totally agree with you. You'll double the income of the households, of the general household, very quickly. And you would benefit the economy as well because yeah. they spend the marginal propensity to consume for those households are so high. So even if the income doubles, they're going to consume more. They're going to buy other, other necessities that they have. So it's good for the economy, good for the GDP contribution. It's good for the household because they have a much better prosperity and much better household income. Ibrahim, does it have, it has obviously an, a huge income difference, which has ramifications for a family. Does it also make a cultural difference? Do so male children brought up in a household where the woman is working, the mother is working, and the head of house is working and has their own job, does that influence cultural expectations and norms in the household? Absolutely, because 
Not only that, look at it from a different point of view. If you have a, a family with the woman as the head of the household and she's not a breadwinner, she's living off social security and she's in an average family of seven or six and the majority of them are women and no one in the household is working. If a young woman grows in that household, she doesn't even know what is working. So because when you talk about looking at the, the mother and the father working, the, the issue is that the majority of the household we have that fall into poverty are actually either widowed or divorced with a, a not a very present father figure and what have you. So, so not only, they, they don't even have a father that is working. And historically, we've seen this, and I go back to Dr. Tereya's comment, pre-oil, women were a huge contributor to the household. Again, it's not work as employment back in the day, but I mean, it was a shared work culture. I mean, men and women participated in the, the, the generation, let's say, of, of uh, putting food on the table. And may I add here, Charlotte, I think what Ibrahim just said, and that your question also, you know, poverty is not just financial poverty. Poverty, there is a culture of poverty that, that is intergenerational. So whatever happens within a family, in a poor family, is carried from one generation to another. And I think this is what you were asking, and Ibrahim tried to explain what it is. And interestingly now, there is a movement, an international movement, and even I heard it, I'm beginning to hear it in, in articles written about quantifying household work in terms of money. What does it mean in terms of income? When a woman does the housework, she's contributing to the economy of the family. So now they're beginning this movement, even though I remember, oh, in the 80s, I think, we had a project in Syria when I was at the UN to look at quantifying the household work, but it was so early that people ignored it, but now it's coming back to life. You know, people were shocked. You mean the husband will give the wife money? Not necessarily he will give her the money, for it, but it is part of the income of the family as well. I think a lot of our listeners may be surprised that we're talking about poverty in Saudi Arabia, because often a perception from the outside that is that Saudi Arabia is nothing but a very rich, rich country. And a lot of the, the things you're describing are very similar to what you see in poverty everywhere. And that's poverty, not only of money, but of self-esteem and of hope. How do you think that the structural systems, particularly Ibrahim, you've, you've worked in policy terms on this a lot, and, and Dr. Thraya, you've studied it a lot. How can, for example, social security systems and political systems contribute to that elevation of self-esteem and hope as well as finance? Ibrahim, I'll come to you first. Thank you. I think the social security, since it's the largest program on that aspect, can play a huge role. But let me first address your earlier comment about having no poverty. Poverty is an attitude, is a risk, is, is many things. And every country, I mean, the, 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 most, the highest income countries have poverty. So it's, it is there. I think it is the role of the regulator and the policymaker to try and design programs that helps people help themselves. So this is the critical thought that we were thinking of while redesigning the social security. The social security, and I'll just focus on two main things. I'm not going to get into details. One, it left the working poor behind. So anyone who's working was out of the program. That was a bit of an issue whereby there was misalignment incentive, depends how much money you make at the, at the labor market versus the social security and what have you. The new law has income disregard. So you still can benefit from social security while being employed, you get a sort of a top up, the approach that they call it the guaranteed minimum income. So you have a certain income and you only observe 50% of the household income, and then you top them up to raise them to the guaranteed minimum income of the shape of that household. So that is one critical thing. The second most critical thing is that the previous law was unconditional. So there is a lot of literature challenging having conditions versus no conditions. But I mean, we have lots of challenges with regards to, for example, we started conditioning that kids below 18 have to be in school because that's a violation of the law, of the, ch the children protection law. So we never had that as a condition. It's we're trying to, in, to on, on a longer term to, to intervene 
in that cycle of poor educational outcomes versus poverty. Also, there is a plan to implement an annual health checkup. The outcome of the checkup is not what is required here. It's just to get people to start learning more and more about family medicine and primary health care centers and try and address preventive health because many of the people with very low education and you know low income households it's not like they don't care of themselves they care and they go for a lot of they would pay even to private health but they sometimes don't focus on preventive health so we want to get them to be closer to primary health care clinics and what have you and the third one is seeking employment so that condition never happened before and that was a bit of a challenge to condition. Obviously, we said everyone is able to work. From a social perspective, we're only allowing caregivers and people from a social perspective, not from a, we don't, the medical perspective of being able to work. So everyone is able to work. The burden on the program is to find a job that that person is capable of doing. So if someone is a caregiver, is not being considered able to work. Uh, but I mean, those three conditions, and maybe in the future some others, we're trying to nudge and incentivize people to do certain things. So incentivizing people. So for example, with the guaranteed minimum income approach, two families, identical families, one of them is working, one of them well, has a member working, one of the other family, the member is not working, the total household income would be higher for the family that has a working member there because we are observing 50% of it and raising them up to the guaranteed minimum income. So, and they can remain on it. If, they, if their salary does not go up, if their dependents don't get employment, they can remain. We designed the program that if they are below a certain income, we will take care of them for a while until that, that income increases gradually and it's not cut off. There is no, it's, it's not draconian. It, it sort of eases them into the labor market with relatively higher income once they exit the program. Dr. Thraya, I'll, I'll ask you, what are you seeing? It's early days for the program so far, and these are obviously with COVID quite unrepresentative times, but what are the impacts you're seeing so far and what work is there still to do? Well, uh, I want to just add something to what Ibrahim said, which is the International Labor Organization Social Protection program. They just adopted recently a new convention on social protection. So it's not social security anymore, it's social protection with the idea that Corona, COVID-19 has uncovered the inequalities that are available globally in all countries. And therefore with the social protection, it's also extending support to self-employed people who are not registered in terms of pension funds, etc., It's even talking about helping families where women were working and then they had to stay home because of COVID, taking care of children and taking care of disabled members of the family and so on. So there is lots of discussion now about implementing the social protection. And it reminded me of a study, I'm sure Ibrahim remembers it, that was produced by the King Khalid Foundation they called it the sufficiency level. What is needed for a family to live decently without government support? And at that time, the amount was, I think, 8,000 reals per month for a family of four, husband, wife, and two children. And there was a big roar at that time about it. You know, that's a big amount, etc. But when Ibrahim talks about how the support is, it comes near to that, yes. The minimum wages is 4,000, and then it stopped with another 4,000 to reaching that. So the whole idea is not anymore responding to poverty as poverty, rather ensuring that people are enjoying a level of respectful life that gives them a sufficiency not to extend their hands to the government or to any sources. And this sufficiency level, when the government provides support, it then deducted from this sufficiency level to, to see what's left to be paid for. So I wanted to just add this because it is a link between a research that's being done by the King Khalid Foundation and now the whole move internationally towards social protection. Ibrahim, what, what would you say are still the, the main areas that need to be tackled? No policy is ever complete and you've done a lot of work. What are the main priorities for you going forward? So yes, the social protection approach, it's usually looking closely into three pillars of social assistance, 
which is basically cash and social care. The second is labor market programs. The third is social insurance and pension and what have you. So these have to really be close together for them to be a lot more effective for to increase the impact. And that is the case, actually. And that's one of the beauty, I think, in, in the way government have shifted into this closely working together, all these different ministries and commissions working together. And it's been led and presented to His Royal Highness Prince Mohammed. So he is following up on that to look at how we're integrating this. So, and we developed the social security law in light of that strategy that we've developed at the center of government for all of these. I mean, it's many different entities, but they're very important that they work together. You cannot just look at pensions alone without looking at social security or labor market programs. So this is, I think, a critical point is to continue this alignment to really have much better impact on the indices that we're following, human capital index, Gini coefficient, or poverty impact, and what have you. The second point, I think the biggest challenge that we've seen on the ground in reality is how to upscale and give skills to the unskilled unemployed, which the majority of them are women in that case. That is an important uh, way to tackle it. The alignment and getting the private sector and the, the employers to be closer to the the program owners and all, I think is very critical because the unskilled unemployed are the ones who have been, they've been challenged to enter. And the it was a lot of challenges. Thank you. Just a reminder that you're listening to CMEX podcast and we're delighted to welcome Dr. Thraya Ahmed Obeid and Ibrahim al-Mubarak to talk about the role of women and employment in Saudi Arabia under Vision 2030. Do you find cultural barriers and expectations are a challenge in getting women into training? It is. Well, getting women out of the house and going to seek employment in the labor market, that has definitely been a challenge. And it's, it's amplified at the bottom 20%, by the way. And this is one of the reasons. However, we are a young society, and I think the, the, this, this young energy and, and aspirations have been cascading down everywhere because the adoption of, of social media and media in, in Saudi in general is very high. So even at the bottom 20%, people are switched on and they know what's going on and they see this and you see a lot of them really wanting. And we've seen the past, you know, just before Corona, unfortunately, Corona set us back with that is when we open up job fairs for social security beneficiaries. I mean, we're having a lot of people, we're closing the, the registration very, very high. Now, the challenge for us was to bridge the gap between interest, leaving the house and taking the job and the skills required to fulfill that job and remain in that job. Um, the challenge I think that Ibrahim has talked about, the government can do so much. And the new discussions that are going on even in reforming the UN, it's the role of civil society. I just came out of the board meeting of Nahda Association, which is a women association, and it has a whole program on not skilling women, skilling the family, so that even the boys are being trained, instead of giving them only financial help, they're being skilled to be able to be employed. So I think there is awareness in the society that remember, you know, the old Chinese, you give them, uh, you, you teach them to fish rather than to give them a fish. That's the whole idea that's happening in the country. And it's also, I think, based on an Islamic principle in the Quran, it says God cannot help, cannot help you if you do not help yourself. So the idea of self-help and giving them the skills to help themselves is very essential into the whole philosophy of work and labor and, and, and assistance and so on. But within that, if you allow me to raise one issue that has become very evident during the COVID period, and that, that is digital work. It forced us into working from home, but these 20%, those who work, and if they had jobs, how are they going to work from home? No internet connection, no equipment, and so on. And also children learning from home. They don't have computers. They don't have the system. Again, the NGOs jumped in. And I know that, for example, in Nahda provided modems and computers. But they also had to train the mom 
how to organize her children getting online to learn their school and so on. So we have to think of part of dealing with this 20% and bringing them up is the new world of work that is digital. The whole world is digital now and they, they will not have the access. And, and not only the 20%, but even in, in a middle class like me, my sister, for example, doesn't know how to access her medical record from the King uh, Faisal Specialist Hospital, for example. So there is a need to, to look at this changing skill requirement in a world that is becoming more digital and less personal, somebody to help. Ibrahim, were you coming in to say something? No, I mean, I mean, this is one of the, I think, the biggest challenges that faced us during Corona. We were just in the middle of, of trying to, to push these things through and the digital divide, especially on the devices, and even the ones that have access. I mean, I mean, smartphone uh, adoption is high in Saudi. However, they don't even have a place, a quiet place to work at home. So it's, it's been uh, quite challenging going back to the civil societies and different organizations that can support. One of the main things that we're saying the old social security law left some gaps that the civil societies have been trying to catch up. Now, if we manage to have this program that will address all these, all the people that are that should be on the program, hopefully the civil societies will have some of their ability to bridge the gap on services that we're not providing. So we're arranging, for example, uh, similar to Al-Nahda, we're trying to upscale the other civil societies to work. And Nahda is one of the most amazing examples in Saudi and other countries as well. However, we need to use that and replicate that example. We need 100 or 200 Nahda societies, but they can only happen if they can use their funds to focus on the services rather than scramble to give cash transfers and also do that. So hopefully we'll be able to do that in the near future. Thank you. Just a reminder that you're listening to CMEX podcast, and we're delighted to welcome Dr. Thraya Ahmed Obeid and Ibrahim Al Mubarak to talk about the role of women and employment in Saudi Arabia under Vision 2030. If I can now move to the workplace itself, we've we've touched upon the fact that new laws on sexual harassment have been passed. What is happening to make women's time in the workplace easier and more equitable. Dr. Thraya, would you be able to, to talk a little yeah, bit about I'd that? I'd like to hear Ibrahim first. <laughs> Ibrahim. I, I think yeah, it's a, there are a few policy changes that yeah. change the structure, which one of them having this the sexual harassment law, also the changes in workplace law. I mean, now if I am a small or a medium business, employing women was a financial burden because I had to have a separate workplace, I had to have a separate entrance, I have to have all of these things. So now it's just, we're back to normal, whereby you're avoiding that big financial burden. But on the other hand, you're also making sure that women are safe and they're taken care of at the workplace. So when you have a very strong security and safety for women anywhere, be it in the workplace, be it in the street as well, driving, now they're not at fear for themselves to go and drive from one place to the other or to be at the workplace and all. So, and I think this structural change also minimizes the concern and the cultural barrier that we were talking about just a moment earlier. Because when you know that you're quite safe and you're assured of that safety, I think that changes the resistance and the concern a parent might have for their uh, loved ones to enter the labor market. Yes, I think Ibrahim is quite right. And maybe I just add, he's the expert. I'm just adding a few comments to it. Uh, basically, the structural change he was talking about also brought with it a change in the mental comprehension of work and women at work. And it is a cultural change. So it's not just that the laws are put in place. It is also people are changing because it's a new environment with its laws that are clearly stated. And not only at work, I'll give an example of driving. When I drove, even though I'm an old woman, I noticed the men were much more polite. They were less harassing. I asked young women, are you being harassed? And, and so on, they said, no. Basically, because there is a law that says if you harass a woman, you're going to pay very high fees and problems will happen and so on. 
women also have been empowered if they were harassed some of them will take a photo of the car and the license and they report so there is a reporting mechanism as well that gives comfort to women that they are safe and so yes we are living not only a managerial planning change we're living also a mental and cultural change of how people think and act and treat each other. And to remind you, I'm Charlotte Leslie, Director of CMEC, and I'm talking to Ibrahim Al-Mubarak and Shura Council Member Dr. Tharaya Ahmed Obaid about Vision 2030 and women in the workplace. As you rightly say, Dr. Tharaya, the changes in empowering women have begun a long time ago and isn't, isn't completely recent. Vision 2030 has seen a hugely accelerated change. What are the dangers in changing so fast? And is there an element to which men feel left behind and to an extent to which more traditionally minded people may feel their ideas about society threatened? How is that working? Uh, that's one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> um, and actually, I think I mentor you know, after I returned from the from my long UN career, I decided that the way I pay back the, the government and the society is by mentoring young men and women, free of charge, you know, just to be able, it's my social responsibility, let's put it that way. But an institution will have to pay, individuals don't. Anyway, I learned from this kind of interaction that sometimes the whole it's that's why I raised the issue of, of empowerment. The emphasis in 2030 on empowering women reaching 30%, etc., and the large scale of employing women has produced maybe two effects. One is that how women, and I talked about it, interpreted empowerment. But the other one, I hear men telling me we need to be empowered now because there are more women being employed and so on. The idea is how do we bring them together to see that it is not, women is, are not being preferred now just because they're women. It's because they had no opportunities before. We are trying to catch up. And once we catch up, and I'm sure Ibrahim can verify that, supposedly, if men and women are, are, are up for a job and they have equal credentials, the women will be chosen, you know, that positive uh, discrimination we talk about. But if the man is far superior, I'm sure the decision will be for the man. So again, we need to, to have this dialogue. There is a book by Mark Thompson that I'd like to, for people to read. It's a book that is, has interviewed young men, not only in major cities, in small areas of Saudi Arabia, through discussion groups, focus groups, etc. And it really brings out how men are thinking, not just about gender issues, but about different things. And I thought usually all the books are about women. Now we have a book about men, young men, and how they think and how they see Saudi Arabia in the context. So I'm just promoting it because I believe it brings an insight into how men are reacting. Are there any major themes that emerge in that book? Oh, yes. For example, uh, one of the chapter was on tribal relations. Are tribal relations important or not? And young people are saying, young men are saying, well, you know, we don't really use them that much. However, they're good to be able to have links, to have protection and so on. About education, there is a chapter. There's a chapter on gender that I just started reading it. So I would advise people to really get it if they want to understand some of the way young people are young men are thinking here in Saudi Arabia. You heard it here first. We'll, uh, we'll put a link on our website to the book. <laughs> Ibrahim. Yes, there is a risk. The risk is there. And I think this is where strong communication is key, I believe, because the risk is usually at the probability side. So if you have, let's say, 100 vice presidents who are men and one vice president who is a woman, and then you promote a woman, there is a probability issue, right? So whether she is more qualified or not, it's just there is an issue always with that. So one has to always manage that. And how to manage that is at the bottom, at the entry level. Ensure women are entering at the beginning. Ensure women can stay the course and make it to be truly contesting. 
because often we say you talk about I'm, I'm, I sit on many boards and they say if you have women on boards uh, usually you do better no but the problem is how can you appoint a woman in a, on a board when you don't have many women CEOs if you don't how can you get women CEOs if you don't have women VPs VPs don't have GMs and that so I mean I think I am a firm believer that these problems do, don't get solved very quickly we've done enough now but I think what we need is have a structural change in the system I always say let us avoid doing the mistakes of some other countries that they still struggle. I mean, with all due respect, the United States, Western Europe are still struggling with the men and women divide. But the thing is, because all of them try to change women to fit the system rather than try and fix the system to be more accommodating to women. I think this is a very critical thought because at the end of the day, there are changes they can only do with structure. You don't wait for the private sector or the investment banks or the, or the large corporations to do that. So the risk is there. The other issue that I have is I don't like to ask people about that because usually I'm a behavioral economist. So when you ask people, would you like your wife to be working and participating and all? I don't know if they will or not, but everyone will answer with the best version of themselves in mind. Yeah. So that is a problem when you ask about these issues that are taking up in the media, is they will always answer, not truly, or at least they will answer with the best version of themselves. Now, we know that the young generation would like to have a much better life. They'd like to travel, they'd like to, to have houses and all. And that is a good reason for them to participate. Both genders yani, um, participate in the household. But I think the risk is there. I do have a concern because I do hear that a lot. Maybe people are more comfortable telling me that than others. But I think it is key communication and explaining to people that even when you look at unemployment, right, 70, 80% of the unemployed are women. So it's obvious when you're trying to employ. So in that, it's a reverse gender gap. So the problem is if you appoint someone as a CEO and you only have one senior executive in a company with thousand executives, then it looks weird. But at the bottom, at the beginning, at the engineer level, the start, the first line of employment, if you employ a woman over a man, it makes sense because the probability that the percentage of women seeking employment is a lot more than men. So you solve that. It's a much easier solution to do. But the problem that the CEO of a major corporation or a bank goes on magazines the bottom don't. So they see that this organization that has no woman to speak of, and then you have a CEO, a woman CEO, that becomes challenging. So you need to either manage it. You can do it. I'm not saying you don't do it, but you need to manage it. First, having someone with strong credentials, that's number one. Two, explain how that person makes it. It's a risk. And I think we need to manage it in Saudi with this big change. That's a challenge that one has to face head on and we will, and we will succeed. And Ibrahim, let me add something, because this is a concern I have. I agree with you. What I have been talking about to various places is that appointing women at a high level, as you say, she may have all the credentials on paper, but managing in a new context where all the one below her are men is a challenge. It's a challenge globally. It's not only a challenge in Saudi Arabia. Men have men's club. They go to Diwaniya or in, in, in the Western countries, they have... They go, they discuss, she's not there. I keep on proposing, but nobody wants to listen to me, basically, is that you need a program where she will acquire mentoring program or whatever, acquire the skills to manage in a new context of men. And men need to be also acquire the skills, how to accept the leadership of women. It's a cultural change, and you've talked about it. And in order for an institution to be healthy, you need to have that positive relationship between the boss and the employee. And you know, as you say, if it's one woman and lots of men, it's a challenge. And it's a challenge that needs to be managed, as you said, Ibrahim, and it used to be managed with a focus that she is supported. Otherwise, we're setting her up for failure. It's very important that these women are supported institutionally as well, and that the men that she is supervising are also supported. I agree, and I think we have an example in Saudi. We don't have a problem in the medical field because we have enough men and women. I mean, yes, there are more men, but I mean, there is a good number of brilliant women in the medical field we have. So we don't have a problem having someone being a superior of, uh, I mean, it's a lot less prevalent at least, but it's not as problematic as an investment banking. Yeah, Ibrahim, but having female doctors is historically 
we were told women were young, you can become a teacher or a doctor. So that's an accepted norm. And that's why we have so many female doctors and male doctors already in the society. But what you're doing here is that you are appointing an outside the old accepted cultural domain, senior management. Absolutely. And that's why I'm saying if we put a 10-year plan to fix this, we can succeed because when you have enough people coming through the organization, like in the medical field, because we had a lot of women in the, in the medical field, if we have, let's say, a lot of women in the banking sector, it yeah. wouldn't be unheard of to have a CEO or a CFO or a, like a senior executive. So and I think the solution is to focus on the labor policies, make women remain in these tough jobs and not drop out when they get married or, or have children, because this is the challenge. Many of these jobs are very overwhelming and demanding, and then they end up having to leave or having to take something a little, a little less demanding because this, the system does not accommodate them being there. But if we have relatively larger participation of women in, in certain sectors, we will end up in a place like where we are in the medical field. So yes, I mean, it would be, be normal to have someone who's senior executive if they, you know, if they went and they had collected the, the experience and the knowledge and the skills for it. But you need an intermediary step which is until you get those large number of women rising up, you already have now a cohort of women leaders at high positions. This is my worry is about these women. For now, how to help them? They are models, you know, all of young women are looking up to them. And so you have this cohort of the young female leaders that are taking high positions. I hope that there is a system to support them in this transition. They are doing a transition for all of us, and they need to be supported as models with success. My heart is going to them, that's all. Dr. Talaya, Ibrahim, thank you very, very much indeed. I think that's a, a fantastic note on which to end. So much has been achieved, but obviously Vision 2030 may have Vision 2030 on the, on the packaging, but extends an awful lot beyond that if we're going to see these changes really bed down into society. Can I just say thank you both so much? What's been so fascinating for me is so many of the things we've discussed with regard to Saudi Arabia could also be talked about here in the West. The challenges we face are far more similar, I think, than sometimes we might realise. But just in conclusion, it's been an honour to have two people with such expertise in the field speaking to us today. And we shall see how these trailblazing women shape and reshape the society around them. And like you, Dr. Freya, my heart goes out to them. And with huge thanks to people like Ibrahim, who are putting in the structural reforms to make all this possible. Both of you, thank you so very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.